This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. A very happy Friday afternoon to you. Very glad you could spend some time here this afternoon. This hour, and especially if you're a grain grower, you may have noticed there's quite a difference in the price of some wheat and canola at the moment. Some WA-grown wheat has been selling for $70 a tonne more than wheat grown in the east. And after half past 12 today, you are going to find out why. So stick around for that after the news headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology at half past 12 today. We'll kick off today with some other market news because strong local and interstate interest at yesterday's Mount Barker cattle market saw a significant rise in prices. A full row of steers weighing over 380 kilograms went under the hammer for $3.18 a kilo, up from around $2.60 to $2.80 over the previous weeks. Great news for local producers, but still a long way off the prices on offer in the Queensland market, which is driving cattle prices right across the country. Ripley Atkinson is the Australian Livestock and Commodities Manager with Stone X. Ripley, what's driving Eastern States' interest in WA cattle? What we're seeing at the minute is these feedlots are really looking to secure big numbers of cattle to replenish and replace those cattle which left feedlots in December 2023 and early this year. And that demand really is is stemming from, well, that interest in Western Australian cattle and, and buyers moving over to WA to, to secure stock is stemming from that interest for feedlots to uh, to secure stock at a, at a cheaper price get them home and get them into the feedlots. Yeah, so they're snapping up some bargains, really. Can we talk about the difference that we're seeing between the prices here in Western Australia and some of those, you know, more top prices you're getting at the moment, particularly in Queensland? How does it compare, for example, say the steers over 380 kilograms selling for $3.18 a kilogram at Mount Barker yesterday? How does that compare to the east? Yeah, it's a good point you raise, Belinda. And when we when we look at that, like feeder steers in Queensland, obviously it's it's the feedlot heartland of the country. They're averaging three dollars seventy two, and the broader WA market is closer to two dollars forty. So obviously you've got those heavier feeders uh, sold at Barker yesterday quite strongly at just a touch under three dollars twenty. The big interest there for feedlots and as well, which is important for listeners to understand, is feedlots are chasing cattle with weight. So any of those heavier cattle are going to get quite heavily pursued by feedlots. The reason being is they want to turn over and have higher turnover of stock on shorter fed programs in the feedlots. So that disparity between even the top feeders at Barker yesterday at $3.20 and the average price in Queensland of $3.70 you've got 50 cents already. And that difference is incentivising people to travel across the Nullarbor, get into WA and secure some cattle at a cheaper price. So it still must be economical. There still must be money in it when you factor in that freight component. Most definitely, yeah. And and I think when you look at that and consider that aspect, that's a clear reason why the WA cattle market is now seeing some of those eastern buyers return to Western Australia, which hasn't been that common in 
um, in a big way for, for some time, really, you could say since 2020. And Ripley, why are they after the heavy steers? What's the rationale behind that? The thing at the minute is a lot of feedlots bought quite expensive grain in 2023 prior to harvest on the East Coast with the belief that the East Coast wasn't going to get a harvest. They thought yields would be down, the crop would be smaller. Obviously, you're competing with export markets as well. And they bought grain at an expensive price. In the end, harvest actually turned out to be quite reasonable. And that price that they secured grain at before harvest last year was expensive, up, you know, touching $500 a tonne. The market's now fallen by about $100, $120 a tonne in Queensland at the minute for wheat. So the reason, and I, I bring in the wheat situation to this story is, when you've got expensive grain, you're going to look for higher turnover through the feedlot. So you want more numbers going through the feedlot on shorter programs. The reason why feedlot buyers are chasing those heavier animals is because they're already close enough to processor weights or killable weights. So you want to buy those heavier stock, finish them on grain in a, in a shorter time frame, and then get them out. It's a numbers game, really. Yeah. And what's driving it? I mean, obviously, there's been some you know decent rain in parts of the eastern states. Is that really the driving factor behind all of this? Rainfall is an influencer, there's no doubt. But when you look at the there's some real key data coming out at the end of next week or, or early the week after, which will show us the, the quarter four numbers of cattle on feed and how many cattle are, are in feedlots and how many were turned off in, in quarter four last year. The real key aspect here is when the cattle price nationally, like across across all markets really, got to its lowest point of the year in October, a lot of feedlots secured big numbers of stock at cheap prices they were put into the feedlot for a short short program, short trade, 70 to 100 days. They've since been turned out. So now with all those cattle out of the feedlot, these feeders have got to find stock from somewhere to replenish those numbers and, and prop those numbers back up. And that's the demand that's driving this, this interest in the West Australian market because of the fact that they need to put cattle back into pens. Yeah, okay. So it's the feedlots that are really driving this. Correct, yeah, and that's that's obviously where you're seeing the interest and the feedlots have, have really driven the market for the first six weeks of this year. You can't discount the fact that, as you mentioned at the start, rain's been a key aspect of bringing confidence back to the broader market and particularly the restocker side. So the restocker prices are continuing to operate at an improving premium to feedlots, but feedlots and the demand from feedlots is really the foundation for why this market continues to find support. Mm. And where do you imagine uh, these cattle from Western Australia are heading? When you think about it, it's a very long way to take cattle from Mount Barker to Dolby. So the most likely aspect would be southeast South Australia or into Victoria. There is the potential for those stock to be backgrounded and then head north of the Victorian border, but most likely the, the, the logical movement of those stock would be into, you know, the eastern parts of SA and, and into Vic. This is The Country Hour on the ABC WA, streaming live on the web and on the ABC Listen app, 12 past 12. Ripley Atkinson is here today. He's the Australian Livestock and Commodities Manager with Stone X, and we're talking about all this eastern state's interest in WA cattle. At the Mount Barker cattle market yesterday, strong local and interstate interest draw as a full row of steers 
that weighed over 380 kilograms sell for $3.18 a kilo, up from around about, you know, the 260, 280 range over the previous couple of weeks. Now, Ripley, how do these prices fit into the big historical picture? When you look at, say, Queensland prices, for example, in October 2022, to give listeners some context in Queensland as I referenced because it's the major market, feeder steers in Queensland got down to $2, $2.10. So you're looking at a $1.60 increase in value on those feeder steers within the space of four months. Right, that's a big jump. A massive jump. And, and I've done some analysis on this. On a quarterly basis, between quarter four and quarter quarter four twenty three and quarter one twenty four, the Australian cattle market has essentially gone through its most volatile price period on record. It's not necessarily this this when I say on record, it'll probably be broken before the end of the decade. But this last six month period of cattle prices in the country have been the most volatile in history. Wow, what do you put that down to? The concern of seasonal conditions when we reached the low point in October, really the nation was in a much better position and the industry was in a much better position in terms of availability of feed and water compared to the 2019 drought. But prices fell lower than than the worst drought a lot of places had had in 100 years. So that, that negative sentiment and the removal of buyer confidence drove those prices to reach the lows they did and then within the space of four weeks, the heavens opened, rains began to fall quite solidly. Now the confidence has done a complete 180-degree turnaround. So the optimism and outlook from the producer end is significantly improved from where we were in October, and that's now reverberating again to the broader market with people feeling a little bit more optimistic about what 2024 will bring. Now how long can this sort of um, streak continue there's a few things to think about. The first thing is these feedlots are looking for shorter or heavier cattle for shorter feeding programs. So obviously that's going to increase the turnoff as these quarters continue and as the year progresses. In terms of how long it can continue, basically it comes down to how quickly feedlots can fill pens. So they're buying, you know, anywhere north of 50 to 60% of the cat- the young cattle in uh, in the eastern state sale yards at the minute, that's quite big numbers and they're sourcing big numbers out of the paddock as well. So the real question is how quickly can they fill fill pens? And as I mentioned a little earlier, when we see the data from, from how feedlots are performing in terms of numbers on feed and utilisation rates next week or the week after, it'll give us a much clearer picture of then what we can expect from, from the first quarter this year. So in the short term, it is the expectation that feedlots are continued are going to compete heavily to buy cattle. That will probably mean they're going to be in Western Australia looking to source stock as well. And as you said earlier too, uh, we haven't seen this for quite some time, this interest and you know the, the, the attractiveness of the prices, I guess, here in Western Australia for, well, cattle and sheep, basically. What sort of numbers can we expect? I mean, I know that's difficult to put a figure on it, but are, are we expecting like, tens of thousands or...? What can you tell us? Look, when we saw, we're in a different situation when you think about the herd 
cycle in Australia. Obviously, cattle numbers in, in eastern Australia and, and also southern parts of WA are, you know, at decade highs. So the herd's in a different position, but we saw over five to 600,000 head of cattle cross the Nullarbor in 2020. That was for very different reasons. So restockers here in, in the eastern states were chasing chasing cattle in WA, obviously, to, to rebuild their numbers, you know, and, and make use of the good seasonal conditions. Now we're actually seeing not restockers, but feeders go into WA to buy stock. So there's no reason that, that when we start to look at the data crossing the Nullarbor in time when it's released, you'll see you'll see a reasonable pickup. But it really does depend on on how quickly those cattle can be sourced either directly here in the eastern states or how often and regular eastern states buyers continue to utilise Western Australia because of the price attractiveness. So, as I mentioned, I, I don't think there's any reason in the short term we see this demand slide away. But whether that trend continues throughout the year will obviously depend on availability of cattle and also the price difference between Western Australia and the Eastern States markets. Yeah, because that's certainly um, the interest would die away if it becomes on par with what you're seeing in, in the East. Correct, yeah. And I think too, you've also got to remember there's, you know, those Western Australian feedlots competing themselves within the market for stock too. So how they perform, we know the WA numbers on feed is quite seasonal. It, it moves throughout the year. Um, typically quarter one, you see numbers at their sort of peak, if you will, before declining. So then there's that added complexity of the West Australian feeders jumping in to look for similar articles of cattle as those Eastern States buyers too. So it's all a number of sort of moving dynamics at once, if you will. Ripley, really good to talk to you. Thank you for shedding some light on the situation. Oh, brilliant. Thanks very much for having me. 19 past 12 here on The Country Hour, Ripley Atkinson, the Australian Livestock and Commodities Manager with Stone X. Well, meanwhile, the livestock export trade to Indonesia remains in limbo, with the cattle industry still waiting for the Indonesian government to release import permits for 2024. And it's not just live exports. There's a variety of commodities, including Australian boxed beef and table grapes, which are also waiting for permits. Troy Setter is the Managing Director of Consolidated Pastoral Company, which owns cattle stations across northern Australia and also some feedlots in Indonesia. He's still not sure why the permits haven't been released. It's a very busy week in Indonesia this week. Uh, next week is the uh, presidential election. There's a lot of campaigning been going on in the last couple of weeks. And that has meant that ministers and senior staff are, are out in the field and out in the cities campaigning pretty hard. But, uh, yeah, we're, to be honest, we're, we're unsure on, on why the permits weren't released at the start of this year like, uh, what, like normally happens. So here we are in the middle of February and not a single animal has been exported to Indonesia so far this year. How damaging has this been for the northern cattle industry? Look, I, I think for the northern cattle industry, we've been very lucky that there's been reasonably good rain in Queensland and the Northern Territory. So producers in Western Australia that haven't had as much rain in that Kimberley Pilbara region, I think it's it's certainly impacted some of those and and causing some some worry there. There's quite a few cattle though that are starting to build up around Darwin that are in yards or on uh, on properties that that need to go particularly to allow feed to regrow for calves that will be weaned in, in first round. From an Indonesian side, and particularly for our business in Indonesia, 
We've got Ramadan starting in a couple of weeks. Um, that's our really big uh, beef sale time. And we had planned to, to take cattle and so had many other importers in January to be ready to be able to supply that increased demand from Indonesian consumers during Ramadan. And that's starting to get, get concerning now. And what impact does that have on the mum and dad consumers who go to the wet markets to buy beef during that Ramadan period? We've already seen an increase in price in wet markets for beef. It's not just Aussie live cattle that have uh, that have been held up. It's box beef uh, from Australia and a variety of countries. That's caused an increase in price. Um, we've also seen some restrictions with some butchers just unable to secure supply. We've seen the chicken price uh, go up dramatically as some of the feed inputs uh, for chicken have been suspended or, or held but not suspended, but but not issued as well, and that's going to have a flow-on impact to uh, to everyday Indonesian consumers. We've also seen in our own business, we've, we just don't have work for people to do, whether it's truck drivers unloading ships or abattoir workers processing cattle or people in our own feedlot to induct and process and, and look after the, the welfare of the animals. So with less stock on feed, there's been a substantial drop in uh, in jobs you know, available in Indonesia for uh, for workers and and some in Australia as well. I know casual workers that our company would use around Darwin for preparing cattle for ships, truck drivers that would be loading ships or going to stations to pick cattle up and bring them up to the port, uh, wharf workers and uh, feed suppliers. They're all had pretty light pickings of, of work for the last six weeks, which is uh, concerning for them. And I, I really, uh, you know, heart goes out to those uh, as people in Indonesia and in Australia who don't have work at the moment because of this. So how confident are you, Troy Setter, that this can be resolved soon, given there's the Indonesian presidential election in just a few days' time? Look, I've uh, spent a couple of days in Canberra this week engaging with our Minister of Agriculture and Minister of Trade and and the Australian bureaucrats, who, to be honest, have been excellent. Um, they've been engaging well with their counterparts in Indonesia. Uh, our embassies have, uh, on both sides have been engaging really well. So I'm always optimistic that things could happen, but we are in the in the days prior to an election, so everyone's pretty busy on on local issues. But I, you know, I'm always hopeful that uh, that we might uh, might get a quick resolution and and the release of permits. We have seen. A couple of commodities, rice, sugar and corn, have their permits released. Uh, so uh, we know that the system uh, can release permits. Troy Setter, he's the Managing Director of CPC, speaking to Matt Brand, 23 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. An update from the newsroom with the headlines shortly, but first, just some other livestock news for you this afternoon. The Shire of Capel in the state's southwest has just had to fork out $13,000 to remove more than 60 head of cattle that were trespassing on a private property. Now, the cattle belonged to another private landholder. The Shire of Capel's CEO, Gordon McMile, says they've never had to deal with a case like this. It, it was a, a new experience for us and the owner of the cattle who wasn't particularly easy to deal with um, and particularly responsive because obviously we have to go through a formal notification process. We just can't seize someone's cattle. There's a formal process that we've got to follow. So 
um, dealing with the livestock owner was was frustrating, I guess. Yeah, because it says in uh, council documents that are available <coughs> online that it was there was three times that it was asked to remove the cattle. Uh, has the owner received any penalties following this? The Shire and the local government is isn't in a position to you know impose any penalties. That's not within our authority. We just simply have the authority under. Um, the Local Government Act to take control of the cattle that have um, that are trespassing. It says as well in those documents that the cattle were in varying degrees of emaciation. Mm. There was a lack of food and water on the property that they had gone on to. Why mm. did it take so long to have the cattle removed? Because from my understanding, it was over a period of three months. I mean, the first contact or first time we were aware you know that the cattle were trespassing was in was in late September last year. First thing is to do is to capture the cattle. Obviously, they're roaming, roaming freely in an area, um, and it just so happened that it was really heavily vegetated, so they would just disappear off. With um, Department of Primary Industry and a, and a vet, we actually had to assess the condition of each um, animal. Deeper had to determine with the vet determined whether or not they're actually you know, well enough to be transported. Where did you end up taking them? Um, we took them to a local farmer's property who the Shire have a good relationship with. They had the space and the and because they're a cattle farmer, access to food and, and good water. What about now? How are the cattle doing now? Look, all of the cattle now have been sold. Um, they were sold in two batches as we approached um, Christmas. So um, all of the cattle now are off the local farm's property and they've all been sold to market. Did that money received from what the cattle got from being mm-hmm. sold to market, who did that go to? Surely not the, the landowner of the cattle. Basically, once the local government seizes the cattle, they become our property and our responsibility. So when they were sold, then the money was came to the Shire and it, it did help us recoup some of the cost of, of the whole process, but certainly not all of it. It's also set the Shire of Capel back a pretty hefty amount on top of your yearly budget. Is that a bit of a blow? I mean, we obviously have our budget and we try and use our budget very responsibly. But unfortunately, um, as I said, this is the first time the Shire's had to deal with a matter like this. That's not something we we have budgeted for. Um, We do have a process that we can effectively report um, unexpected expenditure to the council. Um, that's our mid-year budget review process. Going forward, Gordon, what's the solution? You're saying that it's the first time that this has happened, but what's not mm. to say that it could happen easily again? What are you guys looking at now? Yeah, we're looking to establish a, 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 an ongoing arrangement um, whereby we do have somewhere to take livestock, and it might, in this situation, it might it was cattle, it might be sheep, or horses in the future. I mean, we've seen some instances where in emergency situations, um, animals do have to be adjusted. When would that be up and running? Um, we're looking at trying to move on with that. You know, we can't, well, as we approach winter, I mean, as I say, fortunately, we haven't had any reasons why we needed it. Um, you know, I guess we like to be prepared for, for anything. Um, so that's something that we'd be looking at putting in place over the next six months. Shire of Capels CEO Gordon McMile speaking to Kate Forrester about how more than 60 head of trespassing cattle had to be removed and sold from a private property. Two were not in good enough condition to be sold. They were too far gone. The name of the cattle owner 
has not been released. 28 past 12. Jonathan Beale in the studio. What's in the headlines? Thanks, Belinda. Fire crews are scrambling to contain a blaze which is threatening lives and homes in Perth South. The fire started in Scrub near Stock Road in Spearwood about an hour and a half ago. The blaze remains uncontained and out of control with northeasterly winds pushing it in a southerly direction. A bushfire on WA's south coast is being treated as suspicious. The blaze, which was reported on Tuesday morning, has burned through more than 6,000 hectares of land. A watch and act is in place for Green Range and the Metler area east of Albany. The fire is not contained or controlled. And the Planning Minister, John Kerry, has confirmed he'll reject proposals by two Perth councils to protect mature trees under a scheme put forward by the Netherlands and South Perth councils. Property owners would have been required to apply to clear trees over eight metres on their properties. Mr Carey says the plan would have unfairly punished property owners and affected housing developments. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that update. Appreciate it. 29 past 12 here on the country. I still to come a couple of markets to get through. The Mount Barker cattle market. Tracy Kilner's going to go through the details of that for you. And then Danny Burkett is going to be along to run through this week's wool market details for you. And also taking a look at grain prices, there's a little bit of a difference between some grain prices here in Western Australia and some in the east. We'll get to that shortly. First, Catherine Shelfout is here from the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, Catherine, let's start in northern and eastern parts. How hot is it today and what's going to happen over the next few days? Good afternoon, Belinda. Yeah, it's very hot um, and we do have a heatwave warning out that affects um, a lot of the west uh, coast from the West Kimberley right down to the southwest corner. So um, at the moment, we've got a, a ridge that's lying south of the country, in fact, a high sort of well south of the country uh, and the west coast trough sitting uh, just offshore from the west coast, which uh, means we're in northeasterly flow for much of the state. Uh, that trough extends um, up through the Kimberley as well, so along the Pilbara coast and up into um, sort of central. Kimberley and so uh, light to moderate east-southeast winds uh, through most of the northern half of the state. Um, just starting to see some cloud developing along that trough through the Pilbara and some thunderstorms just uh, developing in the eastern Kimberley and uh, moving west so those storms will uh, push westwards through um, the Kimberley this afternoon and evening. So pretty typical uh, for this time of the year in the north and we will see um, thunderstorm activity in the Pilbara sort of decreasing uh, during tomorrow and contracting north to the Kimberley and the North Interior on Sunday. Um, maybe then starting to push south a bit um, again through the interior on Monday and Tuesday. But generally a uh, pretty typical sort of thunderstorm activity. Um, hot though, as you mentioned, so Panawanaka as an example, reaching up to 46 or 47 degrees on Monday and Tuesday next week. So yeah, the hottest part, that sort of uh, West Pilbara and West Gascoigne again. And just in terms of the north um Probably a good idea for people to just um, jump on our website and have a look at our seven-day tropical cyclone forecast. Nothing happening at the moment, but there is a bit of an area that they're monitoring uh, that's more likely to be over the NT or the Gulf of Carpentaria. But, um, yeah, it's always good for people to keep an eye on what's happening up there. And then moving into the Southwest Land Division, how are conditions this afternoon and what can we expect over the weekend into the new week? 
So, yeah, mostly clear at the moment, but as uh, mentioned in the news there, there are a couple of fires around the place, so a little bit of smoke haze uh, through the Perth metro and uh, sort of east of Albany as well. So um, over the next couple of days, um, tomorrow is going to be very similar to today. We'll have that trough persisting uh, offshore from the west coast and the high that's south of um, Australia will move sort of slowly east um, across over towards Tasmania uh, tomorrow. So, yeah, really similar conditions uh, to today for tomorrow. So very hot and dry, light to moderate northeasterly winds, temperatures um, through the inland central west sort of sitting up around 43 to 44 degrees, but a really big area of uh, above 40 degrees for most parts, including the wheat belt and the Great Southern. And yeah, one difference we'll see tomorrow is that those temperatures, uh, the hot weather will push right down to the south coast. So Albany and Denmark both going for a top of 38 uh, tomorrow. Um, on Sunday we will see the southern end of that trough moving inland a bit, so a bit of a stronger sea breeze along the west coast and western parts of the south coast as well. So if you're in those locations along the west coast or sort of south coast west of Albany, you'll see the temperature uh, drop a few degrees. So Albany only 25, the forecast for Sunday, um, but still a really big area of greater than 40 degrees um, through the wheat belt, the Great Southern, etc. On Monday that ridge will push in further so we will finally start to see a bit of a reprieve from the hot temperatures. Um, so a fresh south-southeasterly surge through most parts um, and a little bit gusty uh, in parts. So really pleasant change, temperatures dropping down to 28 for Lake Grace and 34 for Meriden and maybe even some very light showers along the south coast uh, west of about Esperance. And on Tuesday that ridge will continue to move in so southeasterly flow continuing across the southwest land division, quite fresh and gusty through northern parts of the southwest land division, as well as the gold fields and the eucla, and just getting um, the initial formations of that typical west coast trough pattern again from Tuesday. Um, so of interest will be that that next trough that we're seeing setting up on Tuesday does look like it'll have some thunderstorm activity associated with it. Um, very slight chance of that on Wednesday, but more likely sort of later in the week, Thursday and Friday. So that is um, sort of a watch point for everyone. Catherine, thank you for going through those details. 25 to 1. Richard Hudson is here to look at the rainfall figures and this will be brief. Yeah, we'll go three mils and above, believe it believe it or not, because in the Kimberley, Yampy Sound topped it with four and then in the Pilbara, Port Hedland topped it with 11 and then for the rest of the state, most places, as you'd imagine, had zero, but nowhere else recorded three mils or above. And with those hot conditions, there are some serious fires burning around the state. One of them in the city of Albany is still a watch and act for people in parts of Green Range, Cogeneer up south, Metler and South Stirling. So that one's still not contained or controlled. About 120 bushfire fighters, farmer response units, DBCA and DFIS personnel are still fighting that fire. number of roads are closed. That includes the South Coast Highway between Chains Beach Road and Borden Bremer Bay Road. Uh, Warriup Road or Warriup Road. And you can't access the South Coast Highway from some roads in that area. There's also a Watch and Act in the city of Coburn, but I don't think we have too many listeners in that area. Uh, there's a total fire ban today for obvious reasons in a fair few locations. So in the Midwest Gascoyne region, it's for Northampton. In the Perth metropolitan region, Armadale, Chittering, Gingin, uh, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Mandurah, Mundaring, Rockingham, Serpentine, Jarradale, Swan. In the Goldfields Midlands region, it's 2J. In the southwest region, Capel, 
Collie, Dardanup, Harvey, Murray, Waruna, and then in the lower southwest region, Augusta, Margaret River, Boyup Brook, Bridgetown Greenbushes, Busselton, Donnybrook Bailing Up, Manjimup, Nanup, and then in the Great Southern region, Albany, uh, Broomhill, Tamblup, Cranbrook, Denmark, Noangarup, Jeremungup, Katanning, Cojanup, Plantagenet, Ravensthorpe. And so during a total fire ban, obviously you can't do anything that could start a fire, and that includes hot work, welding, etc., etc. If you're not sure, if you missed uh, the list at this time of day, just check the emergency WA website. And if you're unsure what you can and can't do during a total fire ban, just search DFEST, D-F-E-S, and total fire bans, and that'll give you all the details. number of shires have imposed a ban on harvesting, which includes the use of any equipment that could uh, start a fire. So that's engines and vehicles and plant or machinery in paddocks. So that's the City of Albany, Augusta Margaret River, Boyup Brook, Denmark and Katanning. And if you want any more information on the harvest ban in your shire, just get in touch with the shire direct. Just getting back to that Watch and Act fire that's in the city of Albany, I did mention Green Range is in that area. Kate Jeffrey's family farms around about there, which is roughly 60 kilometres northeast of Albany. Now, that fire has already burnt more than 5,000 hectares and it's been all around their property, but luckily, so far, damage has been minimal. Yeah, it's been a a long couple of days for us out here. We're all a little bit sleep-deprived. It's pretty much surrounded us now, except for to to the south. Any damage to the property? Not the infrastructure of buildings. Um, we have lost some bush. It has sort of trickled into the pasture, but they've done an amazing job of holding it back so far. Now, what's been happening um, most recently this morning? Um, this morning, they're just trying to backburn out a sector to stop it with swinging around with a wind change and heading back towards Albany along the coast. And that if we get that wind change and they haven't got this break in, that's what could take a, the farm out. Um, I'm just out with my dad now who owns Warrior, the property we're on. Um, we're just doing a bit of a recon, mopping up where they've backburned, just to make all, sure all the logs and that are out. Um, the teams are still out working super hard. They've had a really long night. We're actually up at our neighbours. Um, the bush is entirely burnt out here. The weekender is, is gone. We're just walking through it and there's nothing. It's just tin left. How long has mum and dad been there, Kate? Oh, goodness, about 20 years, I think. So how are they bearing up, seeing what's happening to their property? Oh, it's, it's just pretty frightening. And some of this bush around them has never been burnt. So it, it, it sort of burns with a you know, huge intensity and um, it is pretty frightening. Yeah, it would be. What kind of land has been burnt? Is it valuable land? So at the moment, it's just been trickling into the pasture. We had to back burn some pasture last night. But no, we, we've been relatively unscathed. There has been some, be- we've got some beautiful bushland on our place um, big, where there's big granite waterfalls and things. We think that's all burnt through there. Some areas are just bare, like there's just been so hot that's taken all the bush out. But they have done an amazing job last night of getting those breaks in they, um, because they knew what was coming. And we just can't thank everyone enough for all they've done. The, the teams of guys out here, especially last night, yeah, just worked tirelessly and were amazing. And uh, you feel for them in these temperatures as well. Kate Jeffries family farms at Green Range, about 60 kilometres northeast of Albany. Just chatting to Peter Barr.
20 minutes to one here on the Country Hour and still to come between now and the news at one, a couple of markets to get through. Tracy Kilner will go through the yarding and the prices at the Mount Barker cattle market from yesterday and Danny Burkett along to go through the results of this week's wool market, which is down again this week. Danny with the details shortly. And Richard, you've got some grain market information. Yeah, grain farmers have probably noticed there's currently a significant price difference between some grain grown right here in Western Australia compared to the east. So as an example, some WA-grown wheat is selling for $70 a tonne more than wheat grown in Victoria. Now, in the old days, the reason would probably be just supply and demand, but these days... The grain sellers and buyers can just connect online. So I'm just wondering why this is still happening. Nathan Cattle is the managing director of Clear Grain Exchange, an independent exchange for people to buy and sell grain. Nathan, what's actually going on at the moment? Yeah, so uh, if we compared the West Australian prices to, let's say, the Victorian prices, we're seeing a $70 price difference. Um, ASW wheat, as an example, which a lot of growers would be having, is tra- has been actively trading at those differences. Now, the natural price spread between a port track price out of Victoria versus a free and store port price out of WA would be in the vicinity of $25 to $30 a tonne. So you'd expect a difference in price of about that much. But at the moment, we're looking at about $70 a tonne. So obvious question, why is there such a difference at the moment? Yeah, good question. I think um, we have got a big crop in Victoria. So, you know, a lot of private analysts are out there estimating a record production in Victoria. Uh, and on top of that, they've had a wet harvest. Uh, so there was some queries over quality. In saying that, you know, all grain... For in like Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia are all exporting grain. And certainly the volume of grain trading has been higher out of the West. So there's price discrepancies there. Should it exist? I'd say possibly not uh, in that there's an opportunity for Victorian prices to trade closer to that natural spread of $25 to $30 a tonne behind WA. Does that tell you that there are probably more WA grain farmers who are getting a bit more savvy with trying to make sure that they're getting the very best price, whereas maybe some of the Victorian growers haven't quite gotten onto that yet? Well, our data implies that to some extent, Richard. So if we look at um, like the number of growers and the volume of grain being offered for sale in the exchange is much higher in Western Australia. I think Western Australian growers have certainly seemed to have grasped that concept that they have a say in price. They can offer their grain at a price that they feel it's valued at or a price that they're comfortable sellers at. And that's yielding results because the buyers can see it then start crunching their numbers and start seeing if they can make it work and it makes their job easier to participate. So basis of the data that we see in the exchange, uh, it feels that the West Australian grower is certainly leading that uh, and it might be, you know, an opportunity there for growers in Victoria to look at prices trading in other parts of Australia 
as their price discovery to determine what their grain might be worth. Because in the old days, you could understand why there would be price differences. In the old days, you would have a buyer would be literally standing in front of a silo that's full of that wheat and offering a price, and you could see why it would be different in Victoria and in WA. But these days, the buyer could be in Sydney, and the buyer actually might not care if that wheat is grown in WA or grown in Victoria. Would that be right? Yeah, at times. So um, some buyers will have, you know, shipping slots in certain parts of Australia, which is going to impact their buying strategy. But certainly to see a discrepancy in price of, let's say, you know, $70 a tonne versus what it should be around 25 to $30 a tonne would imply that a buyer might be more keen to participate in that Victorian wheat job. So back to your initial premise there in that you could see that it may have happened in the old days. I think there's still a bit of that going on in terms of, you know, growers or the market itself, all participants may be looking at, hey, we've got a big production in Victoria, which often implies there might be some softness in price. And we've had a wet harvest, which has meant we've got differences in quality. Uh, So if we just focused on that, you might, growers might be thinking, oh, well, you know, we need to sell, but it might be worth having a look around, you know, all parts of Australia and and getting some price discovery that way, because ultimately it's how that grain is getting exported. And ASW is a pretty good benchmark. ASW wheat's a pretty good benchmark. Are you noticing similar price differences between the east and the west with other commodities? In you mentioned canola, what's the price difference there? Yeah, so canola was probably was actively trading across all zones: Western Australia, South Australia, and Melbourne and Victoria. Two weeks ago, again, most of the volume and most of growers engaging with a price was in the west, so it's weighted Western Australia. But the difference was still around that $60 a tonne. So, yeah, I think there's a really strong signal here for growers in that you do have a say in price and the more active they are in showing the market where their sell price is can have an impact. Crystal ball gazing, do you think in the future all farmers are just simply going to get more and more savvy with this and you're likely to see less significant price differences between the east and the west? I certainly hope so, and I think that is trending. Um, you know, growers are certainly active in trying to understand what their grain may be worth, so they're looking at prices that might be trading offshore now, you know, physical wheat and in other parts of Australia and understanding the mechanics of, well, grain's going out, you know, um, we've got Australian grain going out. So understanding those sort of export parity values versus import parity in a drought in the eastern states. I I certainly think so, Richard, for sure. Nathan Cattle, he's the Managing Director of Clear Grain Exchange. He was speaking to Richard Hudson. 13 to 1. In other grains news today, an international global certification scheme has rejected Australia's request to modify its aerial spraying rules to suit Australian conditions. The ISCC, or International Sustainability and Carbon Certification Scheme, supports sustainable, traceable and climate-friendly supply chains. 
And growers are keen to sign up to it because if you qualify, there's a premium of around $25 a tonne for canola. The trouble is, under some newly interpreted rules of the system, you cannot aerial spray crops with certain chemicals within a 500-metre distance to any water bodies, things like lakes, rivers, ponds, creeks or dams. President of WA Farmers Grain Section, Mark Fowler, says those rules aren't workable in Australia. In our view, Australia should have its own scheme, which is tailored to the Australian sustainability context, which delivers real sustainability outcomes, which takes account of the views of the Australian grain growers and the Australian people, which applies the rigorous scientific approach to chemical regulation that we have in this country and not one that's informed by popular opinion and something that's not going to put us in a position where with a change of interpretation or a new rule that we are stuck without a sustainability brand, which is that is where we are now. We have a situation with this aerial spraying requirements that in most years, a very significant proportion of the Australian grain growing population can't meet. It really is a story of the emperor having no clothes in the sense that we understand from our research and sampling and surveying that there's a very significant number of growers that are not compliant with these schemes but are still signing up. And we think that CBH know that, we think Sustainability Grain Australia know that, but no one really wants to say it out loud. And it's leading us to a situation where we're increasingly putting the reputation and of, of the integrity of the Australian grains industry at risk. If Australia was to establish its own uh, certification scheme fit for Australian conditions, would you again come up against the problem of the renewable energy directive having European laws about aerial spraying around water? Well, we would have the opportunity to make the case to the EU that for Australia alone, it would give us the opportunity to say we have an Australian brand and for very good scientific reasons which we can demonstrate, we do not need to apply those requirements here. We get a lot less rain. Our dams don't overflow into perennial water streams. They're generally earthen tanks. They're not dams of the nature that might be considered in Europe, which have got water running in and out of them all the time because they have a lot more rainfall. We're a very dry, arid country with well-drained soils. We are a different situation which we can demonstrate with science and have a tailored solution to the correct agricultural and sustainability context. That solution to one side, what happens this season, Mark? That's a very good question, Lucinda, because any farmer that is looking to price canola for this year, and you have to remember that the year that you transfer the grain to the buyer is the the year that you must certify for. So even last season's grain is going to be grain that needs that you haven't yet transferred to fill a contract that's done this year it has to be a, a a certification for 2024. You have to think very carefully about the extent to which you can certify as sustainable having regard to not just those requirements but many of the other requirements. So we would say that farmers, when they sit down to, to, to consider whether they certify under the ICC scheme, there's a couple of things to think about. One is whether you're compliant and we would never recommend that anyone signs up to 
a sustainability scheme if they're not compliant. But there's another important aspect of this, and that is the message that's been sent back to the administrators of the schemes in Australia in the form of CBH and Sustainable Grown Australia, that the more people that sign up to it that are not compliant is sending a message that there is a degree of compliance and the farmers can satisfy that, which is that our research indicates is that it would be an observation that would be made on a fairly flimsy basis. And if you have applied chemicals that are on this list that are prescribed for this purpose, then it really is a problem because there's, there's some buyers that will pay a discounted price for uncertified canola of $25 a tonne. Um, that's for canola. The other thing that farmers need to be careful about is selling to a buyer who only buys ISCC certified canola. And there are some of those in them. I won't mention any names. But if you sign a contract for ISCC canola and you are you either are unable to certify or you become uncertified because you realise that you're in breach and you have to decertify, unlike a normal contract where you're unable to supply, where you can go and buy it from another producer and fill the contract with the grain you've purchased from another, the certification in this case, attaches to the identity of, of the contracting party. So if I am uncertified and I buy canola from an ISCC certified grower and it's transferred into my name, when I transfer that grain, it's deemed to be uncertified because I'm not certified. What happens to the people who get caught out with no clothes in the Emperor New Clothes analogy? To date, no one fails an audit is what the situation has been up to this point, but there have been some non-conformance non-conformances that have occurred around this rule which actually brought everyone's attention to it. It's a rule that actually has existed for some time but has been either interpreted differently or not scrutinised. But that non-conformance leads to an increased frequency of auditing which just increases the chances of uncovering more non-conformance. The danger for this and the effect of this is felt at two levels. At the farmer level, you just seek to be certified and the outcome is is you are treated as if you were uncertified so you actually don't really risk anything which is one of the fundamental structural problems with this is that a grower in deciding whether to certify or not when they certification might be in question there's no really disincentive to to sign up and be found non-conforming because you only end up where you would have been if you hadn't have certified in the first place. There's no real penalty other than you lose your certification and you're back where you started if you, if you hadn't actually certified. But on the other side of that coin is the certifying party involved, be it CBH, Grain Corp, Viterra, whatever. They risk losing their right to sell at a company level to sell their product under the ISCC brand. And that's a very serious consequence because that's going to affect all of the other people that are compliant. WA Farmers Grain Section President Mark Fowler speaking to Lucinda Jose. Five to one to the markets now. And it turns out it was just a one-day sale at Mount Barker this week. 1,849 head of cattle were penned for sale at yesterday's market. That's down 382 from last week. Tracy Kilner, hello. How did it go? Hi, Belinda. The sale commenced with a full row of steers weighing over 380 kilos with local and interstate feeder buyers pushing prices to 318 cents a kilo. The lighter weight steers over 330 kilos followed suit reaching a top of 320 cents while lighter weights were less in demand. Heifers fluctuated with extra heavy weights easing while the lighter weights were equal 
with most lines heading to eastern states restockers. The Wiener steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 260 to 318 cents. Steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos sold from 250 to 320 cents. Lighter steers weighing 280 to 330 kilos made 240 to 300 cents. And weights under 280 kilos returned 234 to 304 cents a kilo. The Wiener heifers weighing over 380 kilos sold for 120 to 160 cents. Weights from 380 to 3 from 330 to 380 kilos made 162 to 224 cents. Lighter weights between 280 and 330 kilos sold from 160 to 212 cents. And weights under 280 kilos returned 160 to 236 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you so much for that, Tracy. Three minutes to one. Well, the wool market is down again this week. The eastern market indicator down eight cents to close at 1,163 cents a kilogram clean. And the western market indicator down 10 cents to close at 1,291 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, the market continues to head in the same direction. Yes, it does. In a very similar pattern we've seen to the last two weeks, cheaper on the first day, pushing those prices up on the second day due to high pass-in and high withdrawn rates. In Fremantle, talking merino, combing wool, fleece wool, roughly 25% was either withdrawn or passed in on the first day. And so that pushed the buyers into the market on the second day. That played out with 18 micron being par for the week, closing 15.70 for fleece wool. If we look at the pieces for 18 micron, they fell 50 cents this week. That has increased that spread from 90 cents three weeks ago to $1.70 at the moment, and that is getting back to more historical norms. 19 micron fleece wool off 10, 13.95 on the close. Again, look at their counterpart in pieces, 19 micron pieces falling 20. That spread is at 75 cents. I'd suggest historically that is fairly low, uh, but in my experience, that will change. 20 micron fleece will off five, 13.35 on the close, 21s, 13.15, they were off 15. No official quote for 22 micron, but I would suggest somewhere around 12.90. Uh, just underneath those quotes, there's always the premium discounts. If we look at um, greasy form per bale, uh, high VMs, two and a half to 3% VMs four months ago versus today, probably looking at about $80 greasy per bale, better off selling in today's market. Uh, if we look down into the oddments or the short wool market, lambs, full support pretty much across the board, in particular finer crossbred types and longer merino types. Uh, locks up 10 cents. Now that makes uh, 80 cents in the last three weeks. Again, if we look back in greasy terms, average bar weight, micron, etc., it's worth about $90 more than it was three weeks ago. So a fair spread in the market at the moment, um, but a reasonable result given most of the falls in the indicators were quoted roughly came from the pieces section. And Danny, can you run through the list of buyers? I can, and we can put the cord on for the last probably two years, but Morris Walls, Tech Wool Trading, Endeavour Wool Exports, Fox and Lily. And again, you'd have to mention Tech Wool in the crossbred, oddment and skirting market across the country. So no real change there, but good to see those top fours continually rotating positions and good to see a market that wasn't reasonably too bad across the two days with no TNU. And then next week? Next week, 43,500 bars or just about, three-day sale in Melbourne. I would suggest no real panic there because the amount of merino combing rules won't change greatly since one-third of their catalogue is roughly crossbred rules. Danny, thank you so much. News time.
one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.